Um, faith promise giving. If you're new to our church, the way we give to missions around here is we ask you to make a commitment of what you believe the Lord is leading you to give for 2018 toward missions. And that becomes our missions budget to support the people like the Sharps that we saw earlier and the other folks. And so there's a card in your bulletin. And, as, and I stand where I said at the beginning, we have, uh, when we started talking about this, that if you're, this is your church and you're giving to support this church, and you should if this is your church, then a, par- a portion of your giving should be this faith promise that you believe God can provide you uh, to give in 2018 toward our missions. Also, there's a prayer promise card, because if you ever talk to any missionaries, they'll tell you, give and support us, but please pray for us. We need, we need God to be at work. We need His power. We need His Spirit. Um, without Him, we can do nothing. So, let me just encourage you, if you have not done that already, if you would take care of that as soon as you can. One church is always a special time, and I hope that you're uh, seeing some folks that you haven't seen before. I thought this was a nice opportunity for me to introduce our deacons, because some of you may not even know who they are. So if you serve as a deacon at 12th Avenue this year, would you stand up? Stand up. Fess up. <laughs> All right, let's see. And Schaefer took the offering. He took the offering. Bill Henry, Brian Hollenbeck, Don Yusey, Scott Waters, and then John Schaefer, who just took the offering over. So let's give these folks a hand for their service. Um, just so you know, they, they meet monthly, they help give leadership to the church, uh, they're, 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 um, we believe in a plurality of leaders here at 12th Avenue, and so uh, I, these, are, these are great guys and we depend on them, and they come through for us, and I appreciate that. Don't forget this afternoon, and I'm going to give a big plug to this at the end of the message today, and you'll understand why, but don't miss the winter roast this afternoon. I, I know it's about a 30-minute drive out to Clovercliff, out past... Uh, on Highway 50 past Strong City and out there, but don't miss it. It's going to be a great time for us together as the family of God, and so um, I think we'll have some activities out there, and there's going to have a a wagon that you can ride, a hay ride or whatever, and some of that, and it'll be a great time together. So there's maps available. or meet here at 3.30, and I'll lead the way uh, at 3.30, but I'm going to leave sharp, so be here by 3.30 if you want to go. All right, that's just... Yeah, that's right. That's it. Okay, um, we are doing a series here, and we've taken a break off for the, for the missions conference, and then we just got started back last week, called The Greatest Story. And it starts, it's, the, it's basically the story of the Bible, and there's going to be three acts to this, and we're in Act 1, which is the nation of Israel from Genesis chapter 12 all the way through the ascension of Jesus Christ. And we're going to be covering that, and so we're well into that. And so there's a lot of sermons online if you'd like to listen and catch up for any of these. But let's see what the chart looks like today. Uh, we're at the, kind of at the end here where there's the divided kingdom of Jeroboam, the northern kingdom of Israel, and the southern kingdom of Judah. This happened after King Solomon. Remember, they, had, they were united during Saul, during David, and then during Solomon, they were united. And then there was this division. Um, then there was the captivity. In 722, the Assyrians conquered the north. 586 B.C., the Babylonians conquered the south. Now, let's go back to the slide before. 
Can we go back to the one before? Before, there you go. And, and so today what we're going to be talking about is after that, uh, that crisis B where the Babylonians are down, and we're talking about during the, the time of Babylon and Persia, and the, the small kingdom that you see there, that's kind of the period of time that we're going to cover today. So hopefully it'll make sense by the time we get through. If not, hang in there. We'll keep reviewing this, and it'll, it'll hopefully be something that makes sense to you. We're going to look today at Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. These are events that happened after this exile when they went off to Babylon. And they're, and appropriately they're called, if you pick up any literature, uh, theological literature, they're called the post-exilic books, which just means they happened after the exile. Um, it's an interesting time because the, the nation of Israel has, has, has reached its peak under Solomon and now it's been divided and now there's this kind of a, a reestablishment of a shadow of what it was before. And they're going to continue, they're going to continue to be under the oppression of another nation. Uh, there were the Assyrians, there were the Babylonians, there was Persia, there'll be the Greeks, and then there'll be the Romans. And that takes us all the way up to the time of the New Testament, the, the time of Jesus. And so we'll be tracking with that. But we need to review, I think, just briefly what, how they ended up in this situation. How did they end up in this situation? Why did they get carried off into captivity? Second Chronicles 13, 15 and 16. The Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent word to them through his messengers again and again because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. Now, now this is the prophets. This is what we talked about last week. Remember the message of the prophets? The message of the prophet was simple. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. In some way, shape, or fashion, they said that over and over and over again. Go through the prophets. That's what you say. That's what it says had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. His temple was there. Jerusalem was there. That was his land. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. Those are sobering words, aren't they? Sobering words. There was no remedy. They mocked, they despised, and they scoffed. And you know, we read this and you read those kings and you think, why didn't they get it? How, how did these kings persist in following these false gods and all of this? If you've been, if you've been tracking through the, the kings during the divided kingdom and there'll be one good one and about five bad ones, it seems like. And, and it just happened time and time again. How does that happen? Well, I think we get a hint. I, w- I was reading this week in First Chronicles 21. And if you remember back in your Bible history, some of you may remember this, when David was king, there was a time he decided to take a census of the people. And the Bible says this, it says this, Satan incited David to take the census. That's interesting, isn't it? Satan incited David to take the census. And for some reason, and I'm not sure the reason why, maybe it's because he was going to be confident in himself or in the arms that he had or the great big army that he had, but it was not pleasing to the Lord. And the Bible says that Satan did it. And we need to remember behind all these false gods that they followed, the Ashtoreth and, and, and Baal and Molech and all of that, behind all of that, 
was a puppeteer. His name is Satan. And so understand when you're reading the Old Testament, it is a, it is a spiritual battle that is going on here in time and space, in historical narrative, it is a spiritual battle. So the nation of Israel, they persisted and they persisted in their sin and they were taken off into captivity. And I don't think that any of us today, I don't think any of us today can even comprehend what this meant. Uh, for the nation of Israel that, that had received their land after hundreds of years, had received their land, possessed their land, had built the temple, had built the city of Jerusalem, the temple of God, the city of God, and now all that was gone. They were hauled away. You know, it was a dark time. God was disciplining His people. But hear me today, it was not the end of God's plan it was not the end of God's progressive plan that He is working toward an end and He is moving along. Now, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther are all part of God's plan for setting the stage for the Messiah. Ezra and Nehemiah are, are very much alike, and, and they're twin books. They both deal with Jerusalem, and Ezra, Ezra is building the temple, Nehemiah is building the wall. Now, the way I remembered that when I had to remember all this stuff back in Bible college was E comes before N. Ezra comes before Nehemiah. T comes before W. Temple before the wall. So Ezra is the temple. Nehemiah is the wall. I don't know if it works for you. It worked for me back in Bible college. God is working openly in these two books to rebuild his nation. They've been off in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. What does this mean? This means that most of the people that went off in captivity have died. It's a new generation. Ezra chronicles two waves of a return to, to Jerusalem. Now, why are they returning to Jerusalem? Well, we had a hint in that verse that it was about his people, but also about his land. You see, the nation of Israel, that geographical area where Israel is today, is precious to God in ways beyond our understanding. Jerusalem is the city of God. Why is that? Because God said so. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't have to give you any more reason than that. God says that's His city, that's His land, and so it's important. And so the covenant of God was with this people, but I believe there's a real sense in which the covenant of God in the Old Testament was with that land. And, and we're going to see that when we get into the, the third act, actually, and the end time things that we are moving toward, I believe, today. We're going to see that same covenant in a new way. So, two returns in the book of Ezra. The first was under a fellow named Zerubbabel. In fact, we could have named the book Zerubbabel. Half the book is about Zerubbabel. He brought a group back, and uh, back to the land. They went out by faith, and under his leadership, they came back. And you know what the first thing they did was? They built an altar. Before they started building the temple, they built the altar. Now, why was that? Well, because because. I don't know how to make sense 
of Israel as God's channel of redemption without a people of God, without a nation of God, without a temple of God, and without an altar where you can bring sacrifices. That was the system in that day. So before they built the temple, they built the altar. Then they built the temple. Never forget this. Everything in the Old Testament says that God was revealed only to the Israelites and for a Gentile, which is probably most of us, for a Gentile to know God, he had to have contact with the Jews. So they go back to build the temple, and of course there's opposition. Anytime you step out and do something for God, don't be surprised. It's not going to be all hugs and kisses. Whenever you are led by God to do something for God, there is always going to be opposition. There's always going to be spiritual warfare. This whole idea of Satan working against the nation of Israel and the false gods all through the Old Testament, that's nothing different than today. There's always going to be opposition when you want to do something for God. So they sent a letter back to the king, and the king said, stop. Then they said, well, wait a minute, but King Cyrus said we can do this. So the king went and dug up all the old material and found out, yes, they, indeed they did. And he sent word back to Jerusalem, and he said what every small business owner loves to hear. The government can help you. Ha, ha, ha. We want to help you. Yikes. But this time, it was true. And the government actually funded the project and told the enemies to leave them alone or they'd kill them. Wow. Secular leaders coming through because God is behind the scene. God is working behind the scene. Then there's a second wave of return, and that is under the leadership of Ezra. Another 2,000 people came, and this was a time of spiritual revival and repentance and returning to God. And why did that happen? Ezra 7.10. I think we have that on the screen. I'm sorry. I can't. (laughs) Happens to all of us one time. One time, we usually remember after that, Ezra chapter 7, I need to read a part of verse 9 before we look at verse 10. Ezra 7 verse 9 says, he had begun his journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month and he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month for the gracious hand of his God was on him. In other words, it took him four months to get there. It was 900 miles from Babylon back to Jerusalem, 900 miles probably by foot, four months. Then, verse 10, For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. Now, let's, let's look at the book of Ezra. I have a drawing here. This came from, actually, this came from the um, amazing collection that some of our ladies did. And I was looking through there, and I thought this said it well. First six chapters, Return of Zerubbabel, 7 through 10 is the return of Ezra. Ezra is rebuilding the temple. Ezra, 7 through 10. Uh, Nehemiah, I, I should say, Zerubbabel was rebuilding the temple. Ezra was rebuilding the people. Under Zerubbabel, the emphasis was the house of God. Ezra, it was the word of God. And then there's the timetables. And Esther happens in between. 
Then some 13 years later, we get to the book of Nehemiah and the rebuilding of the wall. And the story of Nehemiah is a great one. He, he, was, uh, he was a cupbearer. He served the king in Susa. And God moved in the heart of the king to allow him to return and bring yet a third wave of exiles back to the homeland. He joined up with Ezra. And, and together they worked to build the government and to nurture the people spiritually. And despite great opposition under Nehemiah, they rebuilt the wall. Remember, Ezra was the temple Nehemiah was the wall. They rebuilt the wall in just 52 days. So we're going to move on to Esther. This picture might help us, the next picture that we have. Ezra, the, the temple and the law of God. Nehemiah was the, excuse me, the house of God. 7 through 10 was the law of God. And Nehemiah breaks out kind of the same way. The first part of the book was uh, this project that related to the city of God, the wall. And then the focus is on the law of God. So that's the way that kind of played out. Now we have another drawing that tells us a little about how Esther fits into this. For those of you who are hysterical, I mean historical. Uh, ba- during Babylon's reign, da- that was Daniel's time, if the book uh, was when that was going on during the captivity, the seven years. And then you see that arrow going down and that is the people coming back out of captivity to the land under Ezra and Nehemiah. Meanwhile, meanwhile, back in Persia, the book of Esther takes place. Now, if Ezra and Nehemiah were twins, Esther's, uh, she's not even in the family. I mean, it is such a totally different kind of book than the book of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Because in Esther, God is not working openly as in Ezra and Nehemiah. And those of you who study your Bibles know that the word God is not even mentioned in the book of Esther. Did you know that? There's a book in the Bible that doesn't even mention the name of God. It's the book of Esther. It's taking place in Persia, not in Jerusalem. It's not in the land of God. It's not in the city of God. It's in a, a heathen nation. Why do we have this in the, in the Scriptures? Well, understand this. There were two or three million people that had moved out of Israel to go into Babylon. When they came back, only some 50,000 came back to the homeland. Most of the Jews are still scattered and still living outside of the country. So I think in a sense... And maybe I'm wrong here, and I don't know this for sure, but God is working, Ezra and Nehemiah. But God is saying, I still have people back here. And it's not my primary plan, but I haven't forgotten about you. I haven't forgotten you. Now, the key verse in the book of Esther is Esther 4.14. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. I can't cover the whole book of Esther, but Esther was used as a hero to save the people of Israel from destruction that were still in the land. It's a great read, great read. And if you were paying attention during the video the Syria video. Did you, did you hear? There's a, there's a little reference to this, this such a time as this. They, they made a little reference that, that maybe God has left us here in Syria 
instead of us running away, for us to stay in this land, in a hard place, in a hard time, because God intends for us to be here for such a time as this. Now, boy, there's a great application there. Because I'm talking to some people today, and you're in a situation at your workplace, at school, with your family, in a relationship somewhere, and you're like, you're going through a health issue, you're going through a job issue, you're going through a financial issue, you're going through something, and you're like, how's this going to turn out? How's this going to turn out? And maybe God in heaven is saying, He's looking down at you or me, and He's saying, I've got you right where I want you to be. You're there for such a time as this. This is your place to shine. And that was Esther's place to shine. That's why it's in the Bible. That's why she's the hero that she was. Because she risked, if you know the story, she risked her life to go before the king. And God may have you in a place, and he's saying, for such a time as this, you're to be there. You're right where I want you to be. Because you're saying to yourself, I don't want to be here. How did I, how, have you ever had that feeling? How in the world did I end up in this mess? Have you ever had that feeling before? I have. How did I end up here? And sometimes, now, let me, let me, I got to add a disclaimer. Sometimes we end up in those kind of places because we made bad choices, wrong choices, and we're just having consequences of our sin, our bad choices, or not trusting God. But there are times that God has us just where He wants us to be. And He wants to redeem that and use us as a light for Him. All right, our text this morning is Nehemiah chapter 8. If you'd turn to that, Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 through 12. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women, all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively, attentively to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right stood, and I'm not going to massacre all those names. Verse 5, Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, there's another list of hard names, instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, 
This day is sacred to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For the people have been weeping as they listen to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some of those who have been who have nothing send to those who have nothing prepared this day is sacred to the lord do not grieve for the joy of the lord is your strength the levites calmed all the people saying be still for this is a sacred day do not grieve then all the people went away to eat and drink and send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. May God bless the reading of His own holy, inspired Word. I love this passage. love this passage. Can you imagine all the people got together and from daybreak till noon, for about five hours, they stood while the Word of God was read to them and explained to them. And when they heard the Word of God, their hearts were open and they, they wept for their sin and their disobedience. Now, understand what happened. They read and then they had the priests, the Levites, and they explained it to them. And it kind of reminds me that we have the Word of God today. We have the Holy Spirit to live within us. But God has also given to the body of Christ. He has given teachers to the body of Christ to teach the Word of God. And that all works together. But what really made this passage sing is two things. Don't miss this. This is what's going on here. Number one is the Word of God was central. You see, it wasn't, it wasn't men's ideas that made the difference. It's the Word of God. Um, it wasn't just the, you know, Nehemiah or Ezra or some of the Levites pontificating about their great ideas. No, they took the Word of God and that was their basis. Because we desperately need an absolute standard to guide us and give us a path that's unchanging. The second thing is this. The people had a teachable, I'd call it a, a seeking to obey heart or spirit. They, they listened attentively. They stood up. They, they put their face to the ground in a humble servant position. They lifted hands in submission. And they responded and said, Amen, which means, so let it be. Let it be. We're in agreement with this. And then something happens that seems out of place. I mean, to me, when you read the context of this passage, verse 10, it's like, well, wait a minute. They've read the Word of God. People are weeping. They, they've been convicted of their sin. And in the midst of this, he says, quit weeping for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, that's an interesting thing to say right in the middle of people feeling convicted about their sin. Don't you think? I think it is. They just stop it. Stop all this weeping and carrying on. Listen. Today's the day of good news. The joy of the Lord is still our strength. Now, 
So, so maybe, maybe these people, you know, they were living on the mountaintop and everything was good and great and perfect in their lives. No! These people were messed up as much as we are. Even more. Well, I say that because if you look over in chapter, where is that? Chapter 9, verse 36. There's a prayer that happens after this, and he's talking to them. He says, and they're praying to God, and they said, but see, we are slaves today, slaves in the land you gave our forefathers so they could eat its fruit and other good things it produces. But because of our sins, its abundance harvest goes to the kings you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. Huh. So, when God says to them, the joy of the Lord is strength, He's not saying this to people that are living on the mountaintop. They've just got the promotion. They've got a $50,000 a year raise. That, you know, they're, they're living in the house of their dreams. They've married the woman of their dreams. They're having the, they have perfect kids who never do anything wrong. You know, like yours. <laughs> that was my counsel my brother gave me. I remember when Connie was pregnant, I went to see my brother who's older than me and raised two boys and did a great job. And I said, can you give me some advice on this? He said, yeah, if, your ki- if somebody tells you that your kids did something wrong, they probably did. Most people aren't out to get your kids and they're not going to take the risk to narc on them, you know, unless they really did do something wrong. In other words, he was saying to me, your kids are just like everybody else's kids. So, so the, this, is, this, this, is, this, this is real. This is, this is so real. This is, you can touch this. He's saying to these people, the joy of the Lord is your strength. I know you're slaves. I know you don't have much materially in this world. I know you're feeling conviction of your sin that got you in this state your father's sins, your forefather's sins, and your sins that got you in this situation. But he says, the joy of the Lord is strength. And sometimes it helps us to process to say, you know, emphasize different things in the words. He's saying, the joy of the Lord is your strength. He's saying here, I know you're convicted of your sin. Don't focus on that. Don't stay there. The joy should be your strength. He's saying, don't walk around with a sad face all the time. Don't live under judgment. Because at the root of this is the idea of, do we think God is a God of joy? Do you think God has joy in His heart? Do you think God is happy? Have you thought about that? Do you think God is happy? I think He is. I think God is joyful. I think God is happy. And and then let's emphasize another word. The joy of the Lord is your strength. In other words, I think he's saying this, it's your strength. He's saying, I know where you are, but your strength. And I think he's saying to us today, believer in Christ, your strength, right where you are. You say, Pastor, you don't know what I'm up against. I I know you're up against hard stuff. Because I know enough about life to know that. He's your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Let's emphasize strength. It's what's going to sustain sustain you. It's that God knows what's going to happen and He's going to be there for us and He is going to be your strength. 
but perhaps we should emphasize of the Lord. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Which makes me think about what are the limits to his strengths? There, there are no limits. Is he big enough? In um, Philip Yancey's book, Disappointed with God, he was taught, he tells a story of talking to a lady who had a terminal disease and she said she was really encouraged at church that week. The pastor had quoted William Barclay who said, who said this in church. He said, she was encouraged in church because he read this quote and the quote goes like this, endurance is not just the ability to bear a hard thing but to turn it into glory. Endurance is not just the ability to bear a hard thing, but to turn it into glory. And to me that says it's not only to, endurance is not just to bear a hard thing, but it's to find the joy of the Lord in that hard thing. And then she said this. She said, my pastor must have had a hard week. Because after he said that, he pounded the pulpit and turned around and wept. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Your strength, my strength, our strength. It is. And we endure in times that aren't perfect. So how do we find this? So, so is, this just, is this just God talk? Is this just Bible talk? Is this just preacher talking on Sunday morning? Does, does, this, does this go 24-7? Does this touch your real world? Does it work? If it doesn't work outside the walls of this church and outside of this hour, it doesn't mean anything. I'm just telling you. I believe it does. And I believe, I believe that we find joy. We find joy in God. And I think James said it well. Come near to God and He will come near to you. And I believe this. We will find more joy as we find more of God. Before He is joy, He is pure happiness. And so... It's things like Matthew 6.33, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. It is seeking God that we find that joy inside of us that nothing can take away. It is through our disciplines. It is through practicing the disciplines of spending time with God, reading your Bible, praying your Bible, praying, being with God's people, meeting on Sunday morning, immersing your things, your life into the things of God. It's going to be out of that that we find joy. And I know some people that do this. And let me just tell you, they're, they're not theological professors and, and they're not even ministers. They're just regular people. And I see the joy of the Lord and it oozes out of you because some of them are in this congregation and I see the joy of the Lord in you, and it challenges me, and it inspires me. You know, I guess the last 10%, just to wrap this up, is I think he said the joy of the Lord is your strength. And what, he, what, what I wish he'd have said is you've got to work at this. You've got to practice it. It's not natural because you know what? You have many, you, we, many of us 
have as a default position to see that the glass is half empty, to see the negative, to see what went wrong, what's broken. Which football team won yesterday or didn't win? Our baseball team. We tend to see it half empty. We, we, we need to recalibrate ourselves and we need to reset our default position to where, where is the joy of the Lord in this? Where is God at work in this? How is God using even this hard thing, difficult thing? Where is God? Because, hear me, if, if you're a child of God, nothing touches you that hasn't passed through the hands of your Heavenly Father. So the joy of the Lord is not some hypothetical idea that a group of holy people sitting up on a mountain just thinking about God can attain. It has to work in your real life, in my real life, every day. And that's what Nehemiah told him. He said, practice the joy of the Lord. And he says, this is how you practice it. He says, go out to Clovercliff on Sunday afternoon and have a feast And have a feast with your brothers and sisters and eat choice hot dogs. (laughs) I I, I mean, the passage just ended there today. I'm sorry. I just, I couldn't help. It's there. But why don't you come this afternoon and why don't you practice joy? And um, celebrate the Lord. And practice, how do you practice joy? Well, you bring a smile and you talk about what's good in your life and you bring positive thoughts and you ask about other people's condition and you have kind words and helpful actions and you always ask, where's God in this? Where is God in this? What is God up to in this? Because He's always in it all. He's in the bitter and He's in the sweet of all of it. The joy of the Lord is our strength. The joy of the Lord is our strength. The joy of the Lord is our strength. So, maybe that ought to be our our mantra this afternoon when we greet one another. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Some of you needed this word today because you're going to get something really hard and you're not finding much joy right now. And God wants to show up. God wants to show up in your life. And He wants you to have the fullness of His life in you. As always, if we can help, please contact us here at the church. Let's stand together for our closing prayer. Thanks for being here. Wasn't it great to see everybody together in one place all gathered? If you miss somebody, catch them after the service or... uh, See them at the Wiener Roast this afternoon. Let's pray together. Father, be at work in our midst. Bring us to that place where even in life, even in the realness of life, even in the pain of life and the disappointments of life, we know you, we experience you, and you bring your joy to us. Lord, we're not slaves. These people were slaves. We have so much that is good and right in our lives. We give you thanks for that. And in our hard stuff, Lord, we look to you. In Jesus' name.